Welcome to Understanding Congress, a podcast about the first branch of government. Congress is a notoriously complex institution, and few Americans think well of it. But Congress is essential to our republic. It's a place where our pluralistic society is supposed to work out its differences and come to agreement about what our laws should be. And that is why we are here to discuss our national legislature and to think about ways to upgrade it so it can better serve our nation. I'm your host, Kevin Kosar, and I'm a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, a think tank in Washington, D.C. The subject of this episode is, are members of the House of Representatives legislating in the dark? My guest is James Curry. He's an associate professor and the director of graduate studies in the Department of Political Science at the University of Utah. Professor Curry studies how contemporary legislative processes and institutions affect legislative politics with a particular focus on the role of parties and leaders in the U.S. Congress. Importantly for this episode, Jim is the author of the book, Legislating in the Dark, Information and Power in the House of Representatives. So who better to help us understand the relationship between information and power in Congress? Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. All righty. Power in the House of Representatives. It flows from various factors. For example, being in a power position like the speakership, or take another example, being a great fundraiser. These things can bring power, but these aren't the only factors. Possessing information also conveys power. How so? So what I've found in my research is that knowledge or the possession of useful information empowers members of Congress for at least two reasons. So first, Congress needs to be able to write laws that achieve the ends that they want to achieve. And Congress obviously has staff to help with this process, but it helps for members of Congress to also know the ins and outs of policy, the political dynamics at play. Uh, It helps for the members to know these things themselves. And if as a member of Congress, you have this kind of knowledge, you're more likely to be looped into the process of developing a bill. If you're recognized as an expert in a policy space, you're also more likely to end up with a seat on a relevant committee that oversees these policies. So altogether, you get knowledge and expertise and information can get you as a member of a Congress a seat at the table shaping policies early in the process. But second, Congress also needs to be able to build coalitions to pass these things that it's written. And again, knowledge and expertise are going to be necessary and in going to empower those who have it. Uh, Most members of Congress don't have the time to become deeply informed and knowledgeable about more than a couple policy areas. In other words, lawmakers tend to specialize, following certain policies really closely, working in those policies over and over again, but remaining relatively uninformed about most everything else. However, they still need to vote on everything else, which means they need to learn enough about what's happening on these other bills and these other policy areas so that they can vote the way that they think they should vote. And so what most members do is they turn to their colleagues who are seen as knowledgeable, who have information, who are seen as experts, um, and sort of follow their lead on what they should do on these bills. So combined, this means that lawmakers who have knowledge, who have information, who have expertise about a policy, are going to first be more involved in developing relevant legislation, and are second going to be able to sway the votes of our colleagues to then support that legislation. And on a grand scale, this means that lawmakers with more knowledge and information are going to have more power. 
And as it turns out, a lot of the time, this is the same people who hold these other institutional power positions, like party leaders and committee chairs. These are folks that not only typically are well-versed in a subset of policy issues, uh, but they also have large staffs at their disposals to provide them with additional expertise. This enables their involvement in policymaking at high levels and gives them greater sway over their colleagues' votes in trying to get them to support or oppose whatever is being considered on the floor that day. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And actually, it, it comports with um, something I was looking at not too long ago, which is House rules. And it was impressive to me just how complex the rules of the chamber are. And, you know, upon seeing them, it brought to mind the old uh, Kip from John Dingle, uh, who was in Congress a very long time, powerful me- member from uh, Michigan, who said that, if you write the bill, but let me write the rules, I'll screw you every time. Uh, by virtue of knowledge of procedure, he could get things done uh, and get them done to his liking that other people could not. Now, 50 years ago, Congress beefed up its core of legislative branch support agency. This was a direct response to the imperial presidency where presidents had tons of agencies to draw upon, tons of experts to draw upon, and was the presidency was being viewed by Congress as having gotten too big for its britches. It was pushing the first branch around. So Congress did a whole lot of stuff 50 years ago, reorganizing itself, including creating the Congressional Budget Office, turning the Legislative Reference Service into the Congressional Research Service, a full-blown think tank, amongst other actions. Yet here we are 50 years later, And by your assessment, these entities have not been enough. Why is that? So I guess it depends on who are they not enough for, I think, and what are they not enough for is the really important question. Because these really are really important entities for Congress. They provide the institution as a whole with a ton of expertise, with a lot of resources at its disposal that it can and does use to learn about policies, dig into details, develop ideas, figure out where they're going to go in the long term, and I think also help it push back against an executive branch that is just rife with knowledge and expertise and resources. However, what CRS and the CBO cannot do is help lawmakers in the moment when they have to decide on whether or not to support a bill. CRS and the CBO are not built to provide each member with a rapid response to specific questions about a bill that's on the floor in that moment. Often, CRS cannot finish studying a proposal and its implications before it passes. And ideally, CBO provides a fiscal score to a bill before it's considered, but it doesn't know, that doesn't always happen either, depending at the speed at which the lawmaking process is going. Um, so these, these resources are super important, but they can't help sort of bridge the gap between what rank and file know about what's going on and what party leaders know about what's going on. It doesn't change that gap that exists between the lawmakers who are in the know, who have plenty of resources and expertise at their disposal, including CBO and CRS when it's developing legislation, and what the rest of the membership knows when it's now asked to decide whether or not to support or oppose this thing. If I'm hearing you right, it sounds like part of what's happened is that there has been a loss of what we call regular order by which a bill you know, gets introduced and goes to committee and maybe subcommittee, and then it follows this sort of deliberate process, and then eventually gets put on the calendar. And you know, frequently, what we see today is something that looks a lot different. It's you know, what Barbara Sinclair called unorthodox lawmaking, 
Mm-hmm. And certainly one feature, one feature that you flag in your in your book is omnibuses as contributing to this information asymmetry, power asymmetry uh, situation. Yeah. So these days, as we've seen, more and more laws are actually being passed in these large thousands of page long omnibus bills that, you know, start out as, as something that's focused on maybe like one specific major policy debate but get sort of expanded to include and have attached to it all sorts of other things that Congress has been working on. And like the challenge for a typical member of Congress is getting this massive bill, usually not long before it's going to be voted on in its final form and having to figure out what to do. And more, even beyond this, these omnibus bills are really negotiated more and more so behind the scenes uh, negotiations among top party leaders and maybe some committee top committee chairs who are brought into the fold, meet behind the scenes and figure out what can and can't be done, what is going to be included and what's going to be ex- excluded from this bill so that uh, leaders on both sides of the aisle can agree to pass this thing. Uh, but then it's, it's brought back to the rank and file and sort of presented to them by leaders who were the only people in the rooms where the negotiations were happening. They're the only people who can say with any credibility of, oh, well, this is the only deal we could get. This is the best deal we could get for our side of the aisle. This, this is what was on the table and what, what wasn't, um, and so on. And then presented to them in the short term as a take it or leave it proposition, which makes it really hard if you're a typical member of Congress who wasn't involved in the negotiations, didn't get to see the final package until the last minute to make an independent decision about whether or not you think this is a good idea for your district or your state, which means you're probably more likely than not to support it because it probably has some stuff in there that they can sell you on, even if you didn't really get to dig into every aspect of it. Yes. And if it's an appropriations omnibus and (laughs) there's the possibility of a government shutdown if you Mm -hmm. don't vote for it, you face all the more pressure. That's right. And and this is typically where a lot of these omnibus bills originate. They usually originate with sort of the effort that Congress goes through in the fall and winter to keep the government open, pass these 12 appropriations bills as one large package, or they're connected to other things like the annual defense reauthorization, which has to happen. Or um, if you go back to winter 2020, a lot of this stuff was connected with needed, much needed COVID relief that was being negotiated over in late December of 2020. Uh, so you're opposing something that everybody wants at your peril, um, but attached to it are all sorts of things that you probably didn't have a lot of time to think through in a lot of detail. All righty. Well, earlier you noted that frequently the people who are in the kind of power positions, as I called them in Congress, are also the people who are particularly expert uh, or have information that your average member does not have. That could be just a coincidence, but it's more than that because chamber leaders, we have evidence actively withhold and try to control information, which sounds a little nefarious. (laughs) Why do they do that? They do it in large part because it helps them get something done, right? So this is, Congress today is operating in an incredibly difficult political environment, right? We have really intense two-party conflict, a lot of really strong feelings on both sides of the aisle. We have a constant sort of like 
desire to have like a public presence and take public dis- position taking on issues, which members of Congress do in sort of an unprecedented degree on social media and other places of say, make taking really strong positions. I support this or I oppose this. Well, so now say you're now a congressional leader and you have to try to strike bipartisan deals to get things done since most things still have to build bipartisan support to actually get done. Um, uh, a good way to do that is to try to take control of the process and try to withhold information about the details of what's being negotiated until the last minute, because any leaks about this was being considered or this was taken off the table could cause hardcore partisans on each side to just explode in fury and oppose the whole thing and bring the whole thing down. So this is why leaders often move all this decision-making behind the scenes, why they shut down what used to be really open amending or freewheeling debate and amendment in committees and on the floor, because these processes, good as they were for enabling deliberation in Congress in a different era, um, from the perspective of party leaders, have just become tools for opponents to embarrass the majority, gum up the works, uh, and try to tear legislation down instead of building it up. Whether or not that's 100% accurate, that's sort of the thought process of, of leaders. And so they do this so they can try to get things done. But, you know, that has the consequence of moving a lot of the deliberations that actually happen in Congress behind the scenes and really centralizing the core of those deliberations really in a small number of key lawmakers. So how do leaders withhold that information? Is it just by virtue of the fact that they got the bill and they've got the final draft uh, until the last second and it's here it is, take it or leave it. The person obviously is not going to have an opportunity to read the bill as uh, we expect all legislators to do. Is that basically their main move for withholding information or are there other ways that they engage in that? It's the main move, but they can also do things like changing the legislation at the last minute. A lot of times legislation, you'll see this a lot, especially in the Senate these days, where uh, you know, procedurally, it can take so long to move something actually through the Senate floor that uh, Chuck Schumer, or whoever the majority leader is at the time, will put the legislation on the floor and start the debate while he's still negotiating the final details of it behind the scenes with key senators who are withholding their votes. You could these days, that's primarily Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. Um, and then after several days of debate, he announces that there's a substitute amendment that they'll be bringing up and voting on really quickly. And then very shortly, they'll be voting on final passage as well. And so for the rest of the senators who weren't involved in these core negotiations between perhaps Schumer and Manchin and Cinema, maybe one or two other lawmakers, they're sort of left without a whole lot of time to really process the changes that were made. And just like from a procedural standpoint, offering a substitute amendment to a bill doesn't necessarily make it super easy to track what changed and what didn't because they don't have the changes sort of like lined out and replaced and okay we cut this paragraph and replaced it with this paragraph it's just here was an old 2000 page bill and now here's a new 2000 page bill and we'll tell you what changed and why you should support it yeah yeah that is a common gripe amongst newer legislators particularly in the house yeah, why can't we see track changes in the bill? Because <laughs> uh, it makes it really hard for us to do our job. And the answer is, well, it's perhaps not in the interest of those in, in charge that you can track changes. Yeah, perhaps by design. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, just to build on your point, one thing I've also noticed, you were speaking in the Senate, but in the House, um, the Rules Committee mm-hmm. will often write a rule that might encompass more than one piece of legislation and deem that if you vote for the rule, 
both these pieces of legislation are considered enacted by the House. Yes. And you as a legislator, number one, you're looking at a very short rule that is just making reference to some larger piece of legislation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're bundling things together. So that also adds to the kind of take it or leave it because you can't just pick what you don't like and vote against it. That's right. Like these self-executing rules that change the underlying legislation upon adoption of the rule or deem other things passed or other things amended. Um, this, you know, can be hard to follow if you're just in a typical member's office, first and foremost, because there's a lot going on. These rules keep getting longer and longer if you read them, and then they'll reference a very long rules committee report that includes more information. It's not just the simple sort of one paragraph special rule that you might have seen a couple decades ago. Um, that's It's just like it's a lot to follow, especially if you're a new member of Congress and you have new staff who haven't been doing this for years. It's easy to sort of be caught off guard and to not really easily follow everything that's going on, which really puts the people running the show in in, a, in the driver's seat. Well, what we've heard, it sounds as if two cherished values that we have for Congress. Number one, that it gets stuff done, <laughs> partisan efficiency, if you like. You're the majority, pass the bills. And another value, they should be deliberating. Seems like their intention. And question one might ask is, well, what's the downside of having (laughs) legislators in the dark if they're moving the bills along? You know, at least Congress is getting stuff done, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, there is that upside. And I think there really is the upside is that I think this does help Congress get things done in an era where it's really hard, I think, for the two sides to come to agreements. But I think the downside is clear. It's that you have a large number of members who have a harder time having their voice heard in the deliberative process. This is bad if you want representative deliberations on everything that passes. If you want if you want to have the ideal of this is supposed to be a congress with one representative from every corner of the country and two senators from every state who can weigh in and make sure that if something passes it has sort of broad consent from across the country. Well, if everyone doesn't have equal opportunity to weigh in, then by definition, you're not necessarily building that sort of representative support, that broad-based support that sort of the founders wanted out of this sort of system. I mean, it's not that it's totally impossible for junior or rank-and-file members to get their voices heard or to insert themselves in the process. It's just really hard compared to the old days. And under regular order, uh, a a junior member of Congress could offer an amendment in committee or offer an amendment on the floor and at least voice what they would like to see change, or at least voice their concerns. These days, if you want to get something changed in a bill, you have to find a way to get the attention of your leaders who are involved in these behind-the-scene negotiations, build a coalition of like-minded legislators, all of whom are willing to withhold their votes on the final package um, in the face of leadership pressure over some very specific demands. But that presumes we even know what things are on or off the table in those negotiations in the first place to do this. And so all of this is a lot more work and a lot more difficult and sometimes just not doable for your typical rank and file junior member of Congress. And certainly a lot harder than it was 30, 40 years ago to like insert yourself into the process as somebody who's new. Very good. Very good. Yes. And as I often like to tell people, the growth of government, you may like bigger government, you may like more things from it. That's all well and fine. But if the same number of legislators is 535 throughout that entire period, (laughs) Mm -hmm. each person's ability to understand what's being done and to oversee 
government programs, government spending is going to grow harder and harder, Mm -hmm. harder. And as you know, and as we know, Congress has a lot of staff from a macro perspective, but one that staff certainly hasn't grown at all in the last 50 years. And then by some measures that the number of staff working for Congress has shrunk while, you know, just by an easy measure, the code of federal regulations has continued to balloon. So that's not as not a lot of people who are supposed to be and understand a whole lot of things. And that's probably just not possible. Well, all righty. Thank you, Professor Curry, for helping us understand how House members and senators, too, are legislating in the dark. It's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to Understanding Congress, a podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. This program was produced by Jae-hun Lee and hosted by Kevin Kosar. You can subscribe to Understanding Congress via Stitcher, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. We hope you will share this podcast with others and tell us what you think about it by posting your thoughts and questions on Twitter and tagging at AEI. Once again, thank you for listening and have a great day.